We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What do you think about the Laker team now? You follow the box scores of the games every day? Just the Lakers. You're kidding. That is really a compliment. I was pleased to see you smile at the top of our show because once the game starts, you have a game face. You don't smile much out there. I don't think you have to do things for money anymore. Correct. What's up, Laker fans? Welcome to the Laker Film Room Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Pete, joined by Darius. And D, after our last pod, as we often do, we continued the conversation after we stopped recording. And you made a point about how, like, this is a really important game for Memphis in particular. It's very difficult to win a playoff series when you go down 0-2 when those first two games are at home. Not only would the Lakers have home court advantage, which they already have, they have that twice over you know, with three of the remaining five games at the Lakers' place and Memphis having to win four out of five to win the series. So that is a big time game. Conversely, the Lakers, it's very easily, it's very easy to be, oh, we got our road split, right? That uh, no matter what happens today, we accomplish what we wanted to accomplish. I really hope they're not in that mindset and everything they've said about being greedy, right? This has been a refrain about like, let's get greedy. Let's go after the opportunities that we have. We're facing a Memphis team that is without guys just to start with. Also, we don't know if Ja is going to play or not. Even if he does, you got to figure it's, you know, he's going to be playing through some things with a a wrist injury. And so I think tonight is going to tell us a lot about where the Lakers mentality is at in terms of how we come out. But the Grizzlies are going to throw the kitchen sink at us because they got to win this game. So I'm curious your thoughts on that and what you think that looks like. Yeah, I think further contextualizing this game, there was reporting yesterday from Tim McMahon and several others around the Grizzlies that... Jaw does have some sort of soft tissue injury with his hand. Taylor Jenkins spoke after Grizzlies practice yesterday and said that Jaw did do work during practice. He did some dribbling and shooting. Once media was let into Memphis practice, Jaw then almost immediately had his hand wrapped with ice and no longer did any work with his right hand at all. Everything that he was doing was left-handed. There's certainly some gamesmanship going on with that. And if there is any sort of uncertainty that you can sell to the Lakers, of course, um, they're going to take advantage of that, right? And um, I think we'll get into that a little bit more late during the pod, the idea between um, how the game plan changes or does not change with with jaw available and, and even a limited jaw versus someone who you expect to be all out. On the other side of that, 
Darvin Ham spoke after Lakers practice yesterday as well and spoke, I don't want to say extensively, but repeatedly did bring up the the idea of this is a new game. Um, we are here to win this game too. And we come into this with the mentality of let's go get another win. Mike does often represent the human nature idea that's on the pod. So I want to just talk a little bit about that at first. Like, I know that you said, I hope that they don't fall into that trap. But we saw two home teams that lost game one strike back in game two. And it's not there's a human nature element from the Lakers side, but there's also a human element nature from the Grizzlies side. Like that idea of we absolutely cannot lose this game and expect to win the yes. series. Those two things, it doesn't need to be the Lakers have to fall off at all. It's more meeting the moment against a Grizzlies team that is going to elevate their intensity and elevate their focus and elevate yes. their their desperation. And so beyond X's and O's, like how do you view that balance there? Because it's to me, it's more about the Lakers meeting the moment rather than them dropping off. If they drop off, they have no chance. That's but, right. But even if they stay where they were before, it's going to be a difficult climb just because the other team is going to come out and treat this like a game seven. Absolutely. And like you said, meeting the moment is essential in that. I will say, though, that the flip side of this, which is good for the Lakers, is Taylor Jenkins called a very curious timeout with about 30 seconds left in game one uh, just to get his guys out of the game. But part of it, and we were talking about this after the pod the other day, too, is the Grizzlies had given up. On that game, and there were like three straight possessions where we got either a block or a steal and got a dunk in transition, like one was Rui, I think AD was on a couple of them, and it was just like the the body language of everybody on Memphis was like, all right, this one's over, we're going to move on. And then in the locker room afterward, Ja was talking about his wrist injury, of course, and but he was also talking about the broader context of his season and saying it's just been one thing after another. And that's a phrase, an idea that always sticks in my head when I hear it in post-game interviews because we heard it a lot these last couple of years with these Lakers teams that just had injury after injury. And I remember Frank Vogel saying that a couple of times and LeBron and the players as well. And once you get to that point of like, man, it's just like we can't catch a break. It's easy to start feeling sorry for yourself. And so in that human nature element, that desperation, like it's good to have that. If they can beat them they're, it, when they're in that mental space, that is a huge advantage where we can yeah. like – I don't I don't want to say we can break them and talk big like that or anything yeah. like that. But <laughs> yeah, yes. But there is that point in a series where, where the teams like know what's going to happen and – this is very early for that to happen in a series, but I do think totally. the Lakers have an opportunity to kind of seize the seize the moment in ways that like if you let this opportunity pass by, will there be others to win this series? Of course. But like when this sort of thing pops up, do you do you jump on it or not? And I think that we're going to learn a lot about that tonight. Yeah, there is a certain amount of foot on the neck with this game if you're a Lakers team and it's an interesting mentality to have because this team has been not in that mindset at all no the entire we've season had, we've had the foot on our neck for a yeah, lot of yeah. the season yeah. no they've been the team that's had their back to the wall and had to fight their way out not the not the guy who is cornering the other team that's a different mindset and i'm interested mm-hmm. to see how this lakers group responds to that the 2020 team the team that won the championship 
they definitely had had some moments where they would let their foot off the gas. Like I had made um, many analogies that season for the team that would sort of just be like, oh, okay, like we'll do whatever. But there Mm -hmm. were also there were a bunch of games where they just said, you know what, like we're going to win this game. We're going to win and we're better than you. And that was sort of like peak of their powers, LeBron and AD. And we can get into this a little bit more. There's been some questions. I was listening to Zach Lowe's podcast the other day, and he had Dave McMenamin on. And Zach asked Dave, like, where's LeBron at physically? And Darvin got asked, where where do you think LeBron is at physically? These aren't questions that come up if LeBron looks right physically. Mm-hmm. Because if he looks right physically, there's no reason to ask the question, right? And so he has looked a little bit more... He does not look like he's in game shape yet, which is, to be fair, like is probably about right. He came off of a foot injury. It's not like he like hurt his hand and he was able to do cardio and a bunch of other stuff like he hurt his foot. And so there's to me, I wonder if this team has that gear right now to say, like, we're going to put our foot down on the gas and basically take advantage of a team that of a Memphis team that might be ready to waffle a little bit, even though I don't think that that's necessarily in their mindset, if that makes sense. Uh, I I think you're spot on with that. Like, no, we're going to have to take it right. It's that's something that Memphis is not going to roll over. They're going to give us a a haymaker tonight to the best of their abilities. And our job is to absorb that and absorb that and then go get the victory. Right. And so how we respond to that, I'm I'm so grateful for that the Lakers have this opportunity, D, in that I think this period of time is just going to reveal a lot of truth about a lot of things, whether it's Le- LeBron, what he can physically get to. Now, he's coming off of an injury where he said it was a torn foot, a torn tendon in his foot. And so the idea that he's going to get back to 100 percent or whatever we conceptualize that as in January or February, like, I don't know if that's going to happen at all this postseason yeah. run. And that said, the Michael Jordan in 1991 was a very different MJ that won the championship than the one that won it in 98. There's different ways to do this, and he's got the dudes around him. That's part of what's so exciting about this season and this postseason run to me is like, it doesn't have to look the same way that it always has with LeBron for him to figure it out. And if anyone has that capacity to impact the game in a multitude of ways. And if, if you want to get into if you want to listen to more of an X's and O's type of breakdown, listen to yesterday's pod um, with respect to this sort of thing. But if anyone has been able to impact the game in a multitude of different ways and understand what each series needs out of him, it's LeBron James. And on the offensive end in particular, there are other guys you can give the ball to now, which was not the case in the past, that can allow LeBron to kind of fill in the gaps in whatever is necessary in that series. And so that is a great luxury that we've never had before within the LeBron era that I'm super excited to see how he navigates that. And so, yeah, like that, that I think is going to be a big uh, determining factor in, in terms of what happens tonight. Me as well. I, there are so many things, man, about this, this game. Like yesterday we talked about like learning from a win. And we did that mostly from a Lakers perspective, but the Grizzlies are in a position where they have to learn from a loss, right? What do they need to learn? Well, that's the thing is there seems to be so many things that are in flux for them. It's tough. Jaw stuff. We've been there, man. It's very difficult. But that conversation of, is it our scheme or is it player performance from the other side? 
right? Mm -hmm. And that's a question that I think Taylor Jenkins is going to have to answer when it comes to the performances that Austin Reeves and Rui Hachimura gave the Lakers, right? Because those were the, Desmond Bain said it after the last game. Like those are, especially the Rui shots, those are the shots that we are sort of scheming towards. Mm -hmm. And so how much adjusting do you think Memphis does within that context in reaction to what the Lakers were able to do in game one? I think they'd be wise to switch what they're doing on Austin. I think that letting Rui shoot open jumpers is probably the best of some bad options for them. Uh, one, like one of the things I was thinking about, we have a closing lineup. This is something that, especially going into the year, that was very much in question. But the D'Lo, Austin, Rui, LeBron, and AD, who's the worst offensive player of those five? Is it Rui? Because he just scored 29 points in a playoff game, right? Yeah. Like, is it is it D'Lo who can go hot and cold? D'Lo is awesome on offense and the number two pick in the draft and hits some cold-blooded <laughs> yeah. shots. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's a lot yeah. of offensive talent together to where I think you, your question fundamentally speaks to that right there is like, is Rui Hachimura shooting jump shots the best option that we have defensively to stop this team? I think a lot of times it is because there are going to be nights where Rui goes one for six instead of five for six, right? And just doesn't have that feel. That's really what separates his great games from his okay ones is whether or not he has his three point three point shot. And so in that respect, probably not. But if you keep running drop coverages against Austin Reeves with the ball in his hands, he's going to kick your ass over and over again. And that's with Tyus Jones on the ball, Dylan Brooks stabbing from one pass away, and the defensive player of the year as the hedge guy right there, right? And so if he's doing that against that, that's as good as it gets in terms of the triumvirate there. And so I think maybe you see a little more switching, but then that leads to some other issues and they're so small. I guess a lot of these roads, man, they don't, they don't have a lot of great options despite that will and, and desperation to you know win this game. So one thing I expect to see from Memphis tonight is just an increase in ball pressure. And they were trying to do that to LeBron, but LeBron was very happy to just give the ball up. And and so this is a question to me, too, of where do you deploy Dylan Brooks and how much does Brooks stay on LeBron versus how much does Brooks go over to someone else? Um, The thing is, is that whether Ja or Tyus Jones starts – one of them, the point guard has to guard one of D'Lo or Austin, mm-hmm. right? The other because guys you're not going to, yeah. Y- yes, the other guys are too big. You can't put them on Vanderbilt and you definitely can't put one of those guys on LeBron. That to me is the ultimate question of can one of those players be a high ball pressure player against one of the Lakers' primary ball handlers, right? And that's the thing with that starting lineup that that the Lakers have, as well as the potential closing lineup, whether or any closing lineup, because the closing lineup is either going to have D'Lo or Dennis in it, mm-hmm. right? And so there's going to be another ball handler and another guy who can run a pick and roll, right? And yep. so can that point of attack guard, whether it be Ja or or Tyus Jones, can they pressure the ball enough? Because that, to me, is where the Lakers can be susceptible to being sped up or being a turnover team. Do they show higher in the pick and roll and rotate out, out of that? To me, there are tweaks to their general scheme that they can do. I don't expect them to switch a bunch, honestly, because Agreed. that just opens you up to LeBron to spamming LeBron inverted pick and rolls where then he gets a Tyus Jones on him potentially and mm-hmm. no one wants that. Right. And and so I don't I think the Grizzlies have 
a lot of potential answers to go to, how effective those those answers are, I think are going to be dependent on the level in which each team breaches both mentally and physically in a must win game. Right. And are the and if the Lakers are looking at this as a must win game and they bring the requisite effort, they're going to be difficult to beat. But by no means. Should we be counting Memphis out or thinking that they're not going to bring the requisite effort or that they might fold in any way, shape or form? The Lakers are going to have to take their heart. Yeah. And even if they do take their heart this game, they are going to come back and fight again in game Mm -hmm. three. That's the beauty of the playoffs. It's this idea of you have to do it four times. And the Lakers have done it once, and credit to them for doing that. But the mentality that I heard Darvin Ham espousing, that's the mentality that needs to filter through to to the rest of the team. And we'll see it early because I saw it early in game one where I looked at LeBron's face and I looked at AD's face Mm -hmm. and I was like, these dudes are serious. They're serious. And regardless of the level of skill or shot making or anything else that happens, they looked ready to compete at the level that was required for for game one. And beyond all the X's and O's stuff, to me, that is going to be the critical part of of game two. This is a mental engagement game. It's not a strategic game, at least from the Lakers standpoint. When we were watching the playoff games around the league yesterday, uh, the Cavs and Knicks had a similar type of game, I would say, yesterday, where the Cavs came out super sharp mentally, the Knicks did not, and the Cavs took it to them, despite the Knicks getting that game one win. And so that's what it looks like when the home team kind of reasserts their control of the series. And now Cleveland's got to go get one, in at, at least in New York. And speaking of, uh, we haven't talked any kind of general NBA playoffs yet. And so we're going to take a break. On the other side, we're going to talk some Western Conference. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So, D, I'm going to put the Denver-Minnesota series off to the side. That's the the blandest of the four, in, in my opinion. Uh but let's start on the other side of our bracket. Sacramento Kings go up 2-0 on the defending champs. First 2-0 deficit of the Steph Curry era. Uh, in front of a raucous crowd, they've had a great atmosphere there. Um, and then a Kings team on the floor that is 
that's got all the smoke for the, the champs. And so I'd love to hear your early thoughts, uh, including our guy Malik Monk balling out in the first two games. It's an interesting series because I think a lot of us envisioned Golden State winning this series um, to what degree and, and how easy or difficult it might be. There was a wide range of those opinions, but the Warriors were thought to be the more experienced team and are the more experienced team. And with getting Wiggins back, there was this idea that they would have enough, I think, um, on both sides, sides of, the, sides of the ball, particularly in being able to play some of their smaller units and sort of being able to contain um, a high-octane Sacramento offense, right? Um, or at least leverage their own offensive games in order to to win shootouts. Uh that has not happened, obviously. What has been the most surprising element to you? The ease at which the Kings have been able to attack the Warriors' defense and their um, ability, particularly for their guards, to, to, to sort of dominate the, the mid-range and, and painted area? Or Golden State's inability to generate traction offensively against a Kings' defense that has not that did not have a good reputation coming into this series, but has been very sharp, I think, in how they've handled a lot of um, Golden State's off-ball action and, 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 and being able to extend out higher up on the floor than what you thought they might be able to do with a defense that's anchored by DeMontis Sabonis. So, so which one surprises you more? So I think... Or is that even the right phrase? Both of those make sense. As you, yeah, I, I like... You know, in our internal uh, discussions about the Kings, I've, I really respect the Kings and I think they're a good team. And I think that this is, think of it in the rock, paper, scissors type yeah. of framing in terms of styles make fights between teams. I think the biggest weakness that Sacramento has defensively and why they have the def the rightful defensive reputation that they have this year is not being quite as good as certainly their offense is awesome and they play with a great deal of pace. Um is their the interior defense and their rim protection in particular. Like Sabonis is a is game and he's gonna play as hard as he can, but there's just certain athletic limitations to what he can provide rim protection wise around the rim. And then there's not a lot of guys around him that kind of help make up for that. And so it's a collective type of uh it's a yeah, it's a collective type of uh problem that they have. Golden State doesn't put a ton of pressure on the rim. That's not what they do. And so if you need to chase guys around the perimeter, which is the fundamental problem that Golden State that Golden State poses for almost every opponent is that you got to guard them in a totally different way than just about any other team. They've got De'Aaron Fox, Davion Mitchell, and even Malik Monk. If you need fast guys that can run all day to chase people around on the perimeter, Sacramento can totally do that, right? And then on the other end, I'd say that's the that's the side that surprises me a little bit more. Like I, I love me some Malik Monk, and I'm I'm certainly a believer in his game, but the ease in which he's been scoring. But it's also one of those things, D. And there's an element of this in the Phoenix and Clippers series that we'll get to in a sec, where you don't see it coming but then when you see it it's like oh that makes sense yes. and sacramento's perimeter players are a lot more athletic than golden states and they're putting on their track shoes and that's been historically how golden state likes to play and it's always interesting when teams meet each other where one team's like yeah i want to play like this and the other team's like hell yeah let's do it let's play exactly like that because we want to play that way too and you know, you got all these guys that are full of speed and energy and, and athleticism with Fox and Monk and Mitchell and all of that, that I don't know. It's like, th this is going to be a great series. 
Yes, the resp- I'm interested in seeing what the response is from the Warriors. We haven't mentioned at all yet that Draymond Green has been suspended for Game 3, which um, is problematic for the Warriors in in a lot of ways. The, the point that you made about the guards' athleticism for Sacramento is a point I want to stick on, though, for a second, because one of the things that the Kings are doing, and they're doing it very effectively, is they are finding the right screen angles and the right ways to set screens at all these different ranges within the half court. So when Sacramento decides that they want to pressure the ball high and sort of extend their ball pressure, the Kings have no qualms about putting Sabonis into ball screens that high because he has the ball skills as a release valve that if you, that if he actually gets the ball going downhill, he is such a good decision maker that it's, he's like Draymond in that way. Sabonis averaged like seven or eight assists a game and he can make that play going downhill, right Pete? Yes, no, he can absolutely make that play going downhill when they overplay on that ball pressure. Although Draymond has been posing some problems on those. That's where the the uh, infamous Draymond hand, not to be confused with the infamous Draymond foot, sure. Uh, sure. can get in the way. But they're not going to have Draymond on those. So that's actually a great point that Draymond can stop that, that Sabonis coming downhill one-on-one. Can there other guys? I'm not so sure. So my point is, in getting back to, to the guards then, is that if – with Sabonis as as a release valve, those guards have been able to turn the corner and then they are playing in space with a little bit of, of a head of steam attacking Warriors defenders that are not equipped to deal with De'Aaron Fox like Euro stepping and crossing over or Malik Monk with a quick crossover and then just exploding to, to the basket. And it's Monk and Fox who are then creating finishing opportunities and chances in the restricted area and in the mid range where they're just too good on offense. Like the Kings. It's funny because this season we saw so many sort of um, incredible offensive performances, right? Like multiple players scoring like in the sixties, Dame had a 70 point game. I think Mitchell had a 70 point game too, a Donovan Mitchell. And so all of like, I think league high number of players who scored 30 points or more or averaged third 30 points or more for, for a season, all of these numbers sort of were warped. But the, the one that's, that is super interesting to me is that the Kings had the highest offensive efficiency rating like ever, ever. Now you'll get people saying, okay, let's calm down here. The 2022, 23 Sacramento Kings are not the best offense the NBA has ever seen, right? They're not better than the Showtime Lakers. They're not better than the 73 win warriors, yada, yada, yada. That said, the fact that they could score at the rate that they did during the regular season is indicative of their offensive talent. And so these guys are too good on offense, Pete. And so the Warriors, the, the thing that has stood out to me that has been interesting, and I'll kick this to you here. The Warriors have looked, especially later in games, like in the fourth quarter, I've felt like the Warriors have been pressing for baskets in ways that I've rarely seen them pressing for baskets because of the Kings' ability to score score at the rate that they've been able to score against their their defense. And that's put the Warriors on their heels a little bit where I felt like just watching the game that the Warriors offense is under a pressure that I don't think that they have felt 
mm-hmm. not because the other defense is so good, like against last year's Celtics. Last year's Celtics, it was the defense mm-hmm. that made them feel feel pressure. But it's this weird thing where it's the Kings offense that is making the Kings offense feel pressure. And that's a different mentality, I think, within a possession. If I could throw this into, I think their pace uh adds to this equation too, where it's like, you've got younger athletes that will run all day. And it's it's very difficult when, most of the time when Golden State plays a team, they're playing a team where they have that as an advantage over their opponent. And in this series, they just have a couple of things that they normally have an advantage in that just happens to play into what Sacramento is totally happy to do. Let's run up and down the floor and get buckets. Let's let it fly with Malik Monk off of a sidestep three. Let's go. We are happy to play this style of basketball. And I think that the, I think that is one of Sacramento's great advantages in this series that as it goes deeper in, if they keep pressing it, I think they can actually win the series. And especially with Draymond out in game three, they've got to, that'd be an easy game to have a mental letdown. They got to take the game that Draymond doesn't play in if they want to win this series. Like that sort of thing though, D, I think just super interesting matchup. Um, Let's transition to uh, Phoenix and the Clippers. Clippers come out in game one and win a slugfest, right? It wasn't particularly pretty, but their physicality, they really leveraged it down the stretch. And we're getting a great reminder that Kawhi Leonard is amazing. And uh, he's really quite good. Really quite good about he's quite good. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And then game two, you know, you kind of expect Phoenix to come out and but, you know, Clippers jump on top of them. But then a late second quarter run by Phoenix ties it at halftime. They continue that run to start the third quarter and then they go back and forth, you know, down the stretch of that game, but end up getting a 10, 12 point win uh, where Phoenix kept them at a pretty good arm's distance. And I think that they figured out kind of a, a perhaps fatal flaw in the Clippers, but super interesting two games in Phoenix, man. What have been your impressions? No, I think you hit a lot there. Kawhi and Russ, I think the Clippers have been the more physical team in general, like even like Zubat versus Aiton um, or Plumley against some of their second unit bigs. And the idea of how, we're going to just pound you with guys like Eric Gordon, um, just all of Norm Powell, all of their, like, yeah, all of them have the same physique. Yeah, yeah. The only guy that's not like that is like Bones Highland. And, and, mm-hmm. and he's an interesting player too, because he has some of that quickness and shot creation ability that I thought was giving Chris Paul problems, for example. Mm-hmm. But it really is going to come down to, can they get Booker and KD going enough? Because that in that rock fight that you described, of game one that got shifted more to a skill game even with the physicality of it all in that second half right because they were letting a lot of contact go in that game and i thought durant and and booker in particular really rose to that idea of okay well if you're gonna let me push off in order to get into my shot or you're going to double team me um Finding opportunities to get KD the ball without Kawhi Leonard on him, I thought was um, really the turning point of like like of that game because KD was just able to get to his spots and score. And then yeah. once they sent double teams, KD is unselfish enough to basically just kick the ball right back out. And then it was swing, swing. And that, but talk to me more about that fatal flaw that you saw because I don't want to steal your thunder with that. So I I think no, I think you lead me right into it, and that's. Phoenix has 
three elite jump shooters. Like playoff jump shooters are going to hit the cold-blooded shots that Kawhi hits that make it go, ooh, right? When when he make they make it, right? They got three of those guys with KD, Booker, and CP3. And the Clippers' fatal flaw to me is that they can't go small without losing so much size that it becomes very difficult to kind of contain defensively on, on the interior in particular. Now, Russ, I think, is going to be an interesting character in this. I just don't think they have enough forwards to do it. And so basically their problem is that Zoo and Plumley are going to get put into a whole bunch of actions where if they come up too high, they don't have the foot speed to recover. Like if they close out to a shooter, one of these elite jump shooters that you have to close out to too high, they're just going to get beat off of the dribble all the way to the rim, even though that's not Phoenix's great strength. They can definitely beat Zoo and Plumley off of the dribble to get to the rim if they get too high out onto the perimeter. But again, if they don't come out high enough, that's just pull-up jumpers. And then you st- if you double, you start getting into rotation. And then Devin Booker is attacking closeouts and just kicking your ass, or it's Kevin Durant doing that, like against a, an advantage that's already created when they're normally guy, the guys that have to create the advantage in the first place. And so Booker last night was unbelievable in that game, in part because he's attacking guys in rotation and yep. getting all of these looks that are really good looks, in part because of KD, the attention KD's drawing. But all of that, to me, flows back to the Clippers' fundamental problem of their fives can't get out to shooters, and they don't have defensively enough on the interior to really to really like play small in a way that would help res- resolve that or at least address it. And so that to me, if Phoenix keeps hammering that and Monty Williams truly did have that aha moment that you were just talking yeah. about, uh, it can go from them pulling it out of the rock fight that is the advantage toward the Clippers to more of the skill game that's way more of an advantage for them. Yeah, I don't, I, I'm not exactly sure which way this series goes. Um, Kawhi literally is the Terminator. And every time he shot, I thought the ball was going in. And any time he was on defense um, against a primary ball, ball handler, I thought he was going to get a stop. And so, or he'd jump a passing lane. He's smart on top of all of it. He dominates in a bunch of different ways. Yeah. So, any time he was in the middle of the frame, I thought the Clippers were the better team. Right, which is an interesting thing to say when the other team is going off with Kevin Durant and Devin Booker. Like those guys were scoring almost every time they they got the ball too. Um, and credit to Booker, I thought that he raised his game in in a way that was that m- we talked about meeting the moment earlier when it came to to the Lakers and their mindset. Booker, that stretch, he dominated mm-hmm. that stretch to close the second quarter and then hit that that three before the uh, buzzer to tie the game. And then he came out in the third and the fourth quarter and was just on it again. And so Booker met the moment I thought with, with a level of determination and skill that impressed me. Um, That's what's scariest about Phoenix is they have three guys that even with CP3's kind of declining physical tools, right at his age, like they have three guys that have always done that in the playoffs. Yeah. So I'm, I don't know where the Clippers go in terms of solving their front court issues. Like um, Marcus Morris got ditched out of the rotation a while back. Um, I I think he had some back issues, but I don't know the status of him coming into the series. His his back may might be important. His back may or may not Mm -hmm. be bothering him. I think he had fallen out of the rotation too, though, because he was not defending to the level 
that you need him to. And Batum was a much better fit for what they needed um, if Kawhi was going to play the way that he was. And and even with Russ taking on more usage, right, that like just Batum was the better fit. But Morris is a player who has played some small ball center for them as like a floor spacer mm-hmm. and sitting in the corner and, and can play with the edge defensively just in terms of toughness, even if his lateral quickness is not where it needs to be. Um, Robert Covington is another interesting option. Like they signed all of these sort He's of combo. Small, though, you know, like- they are. But I'm just saying the ranginess of that and the ability to sort of rotate and just potentially switch more is 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 yeah. something that because you can't switch with Highland on the court and you were talking no. about like do they have enough forwards to play a certain way when Russ is in the game and it's like you need a skill component with your forwards and a mm. certain amount of like mm-hmm. like I can do something around the basket defensively even if it's just flying in to get a rebound or like hammering a dude on a box out in order to keep Mm -hmm. right and so can morris play i'm not sure can covington play i'm not sure but it's like these are potential options the clippers have in their bag that like the suns don't have that sort of depth the sun, like this is mm-hmm. the Suns formula moving forward, and this is where Ty Lu. I think Ty Lu's an excellent coach, right? And so, figuring out can he pivot? What are the answers? Are there answers on his roster? This is the chess match that that's that's going to happen because if Kawhi is at this level, the Clippers certainly have more than a puncher's chance. I think they can still win this series, and they have home court advantage too. Yes, and that that I think has been the impression I've come away with in the first two is that the idea that this is a you know big mismatch in one direction I don't think has played out that way. That said, I'm I th- I think Phoenix can keep spamming what they were doing yesterday and flip the series in a way that I, I don't know if the Clippers have an answer to even with all of their depth. So we shall see. Been a fun start to the Western Conference playoffs. Uh, let's see how the Lakers come out tonight. We will be back tomorrow to discuss how it went. But until then, you've been listening to the Laker Film Room podcast. We'll catch you guys next time. Baines has got it in low to McHale. McHale wants to turn his double team. Just pass out of front, broken up by Worthy. Tips to Magic. Worthy dies on his belly. Magic scores. There's Magic, got it. Magic fires. It's good. The Lakers win the game. The Lakers win the game. Rebound is Lonnie. Three seconds left. Van Exel to win it. It's on the way. Good. Bryant, 48 points, 16 rebounds. with his eighth block shot that an NBA Finals record. A lot of Laker fans okay, sticking so around for this. You're seeing something that's very rare indeed. A Laker to get MVP chance right, in, Boston. in Boston. Of all places. Are you kidding me? Kobe. Hard to believe. Are you kidding me? Unreal. Are you kidding me? Lakers looking to push. Bryant spinning in the lane. Back for Gasol. Pretty pass. And it's back to a three-point game. Kobe Bryant picked up by Bell. There's Let's the move. Go. Two, Let's go. one, Missing. it! Unbelievable. Right. 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 It's over. Shot clock out of five. Bryant. Yes. Yeah. And that was a little tough to Albert Gentry. Bad insult to injury, Kobe. I mean, what a shot. I mean, you can't defend that. Are you kidding me? 2.1 seconds remaining. Denver a foul to give. Jokic 
Trying to disrupt Rondo. He puts it in. Here's Davis. 4-3 in the win. Oh, it's good! Anthony Davis has won it for the Lakers! James again. Oh, he hits another one. LeBron James putting together a closing quarter against the Nuggets. This historic 2020 NBA championship belongs to the Los Angeles Lakers. The Lakers conquer the bubble, and banner number 17 will soon hang in the rafters.